Excited Utterance, The Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 102, Kyriakos Kotsoglu, Zombie Forensics, The Polygraph in England and Wales. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Kiri Kutsukli. Kiri is a senior lecturer at Northumbria Law School in the UK, where his research is in the area of criminal evidence and criminal law. His recent work largely focuses on expert evidence in the criminal context. Our podcast today features Kiri's new article, Zombie Forensics, the Use of the Polygraph and the Integrity of the Criminal Justice System in England and Wales. It's forthcoming in the International Journal of Evidence and Proof. In it, Kiri looks at the reemergence, or perhaps the remarkable staying power, of the polygraph particularly in England and Wales. Like many American jurisdictions, English law bars the admissibility of polygraphs at trial. But the Offender Management Act of 2007 opened the door to the use of polygraphs in managing sex offenders on parole. And some proposed legislation in the UK also seems to contemplate its broader use. Curie looks at the problematic nature of polygraph evidence, not only from the usual scientific reliability angle, but also from the standpoint of its psychology. He asks whether the legitimacy of the legal system can survive the cognitive dissonance of using polygraph checks for probation and parole while simultaneously excluding it as unreliable at trial. Kiri, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Many thanks, Ed. I'd like to begin with the recent reemergence of polygraphs in the UK's penal system. Can you tell us where the polygraph is being used and what's the history behind it? Yes, well, the polygraph has a long and controversial history. Its UK history starts in 2007 with the Offender Management Act, which allows courts to insert a polygraph condition to the release license for certain offenders, sexual offenders. So ever since 2007, we have the polygraph in statute. The problem is, among other things, that we cannot tell for sure whether this is the whole story. And this is one of the things we tried to do in one of the papers with my co-author, Dr. Martin Oswald, sent out Freedom of Information requests to find out to what extent, if at all, police forces in the UK deploy the polygraph. If I remember correctly, in that earlier paper, you reported that police departments as well, in addition to this probationary use, that these police departments also use polygraphs informally for investigatory purposes as well. Is that right? That is probably correct. 
to give you some context, so we sent out freedom of information requests to all police forces in the UK, all 43. A big number of them replied, so we had a reply rate of 93%. 38 of them issued an NCND, a non-confirmation, no-deny response. And five among them said that they never have and never will use the polygraph. But what was interesting is that we found out that at least one police force uses the polygraph as a condition for bail. And upon our further query, they admitted that they have no authorization in law to do that. And they also use the polygraph as a part of a pilot scheme for prolific offenders, for rehabilitation. So it seems that the remit of the polygraph is uh, bigger than its statutory use. And it may also be interesting for you and your listeners that the remit of the polygraph in the UK, especially in England and Wales, is expected to expand with similar provisions in the Domestic Abuse Bill and also the Counter-Terrorism and Sentencing Bill 2020. So, and these are areas that are sensitive to safety of the person, but also for state security, especially when it comes to terrorism. Prior to this recent period, so prior to the 2007 law governing sex offenders, What was the status of the polygraph in the UK? From a purely legal point of view, the polygraph did not exist. There were actually no legal authorities declaring the use of the polygraph admissible in a criminal court, but there's this general assumption of inadmissibility. Our problem is that we still do not have the equivalent of FRI which declares the polygraph inadmissible. And one of the things that I'm trying to do in these papers, especially in the second paper called Zombie Forensics, is to show that we cannot conflate silence with uncertainty. If we look closely at the set of evidential principles for the law of evidence in England and Wales, then it becomes very clear that a device and the polygraph test should be declared inadmissible because it is not valid. It's just pseudoscience. If anyone tries to use the polygraph in the criminal process. We know from many scientific studies and consensus statements that the polygraph is not reliable evidence. So how are the authorities justifying their continuing use of the polygraph? That's an excellent question, Ed. First of all, I think we need to establish, although it is not really necessary, that the polygraph does not detect anything. It is just an interrogation tool, which also shows why governments and legal systems regard this as appealing and interesting. What is interesting in that context is that the evaluation study for the pilot that deployed the polygraph in East and West Midlands in England, a person to the Offender Management Act 2007, apologies for the legalese, 
So the study conducted by researchers at the University of Kent assessed the polygraph test focused conveniently and exclusively on the utility of the polygraph. And what they found out is, unsurprisingly, that those interviewees that had to undergo the polygraph test made more disclosures, what they call in this evaluation study from 2012, clinically significant disclosures, CSD, so which is a fancy term for confessions. And this shows that if we use the polygraph, then uh, we increase the number of confession statements. And this is, I suppose, excellent news for governments who are trying to promote a law and order agenda. What you're saying is that it's been justified as a means of effectively applying psychological pressure or as a means of tricking certain defendants into revealing truths or things that they would not otherwise reveal. But aside from that investigatory purpose, the evidence isn't actually admissible. You make some compelling arguments in your article about why polygraphs shouldn't be used, even if it's true that they prompt more disclosures, and even if we have the requirement that they be ultimately inadmissible. Why shouldn't they be used? Right. We know for the past two centuries, ever since the father of modern criminal law theory, Cesare Beccaria, in his seminal treatise on crime and punishment, that psychological pressure or physical pressure on the defendant or the interviewee and probative value of the evidence are inversely proportionate. So if we increase the pressure that we put on the interviewee, we decrease the probative value of the evidence. So one thing to say there is that, first of all, confessions are not the overarching objective in the criminal justice system. And we cannot accept anything that would guarantee an increased number of confession statements, especially when it is based on deception, especially when it is oppressive and based on pseudoscience. The second thing is that by deploying the polygraph, by putting the interviewee under pressure, we, on the one hand, get more disclosures, but on the other hand, we decrease the probative value. So even in the context of probation, I don't see how this serves the purposes of protecting society, of uh, helping the offender to rehabilitate, and how it chimes with a legal system that aspires to be rational. Let me push a little bit more on the deception aspect of it. And here I think there's, in some ways, a bit of a divide between the UK and the United States. As I understand from your paper, the UK has prohibitions on deceptive police practices, whereas in the US, we're a bit freer with that. Tell us a little bit more about those rules governing deception in the UK. So although we in England and Wales, we don't have the equivalent of a fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine, but on the other hand, there are legal authorities that establish 
the law and stipulate that if the evidence is based on deception, then it is inadmissible or it is highly unlikely that it will pass the uh, tests in Section 76 and 78 of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. So let me give you an example. In Marston, the defendant had been told that his fingerprints had been found on the crime scene, which was a lie, and that was regarded as deception, and deception falls under the remit of oppression. And through that, it is to be declared as inadmissible. The problem with the polygraph is that it is, by definition, based on deception. First of all, the very context of having an interviewee undergoing a polygraph test suggests that this device is scientific because the government uses it, because the probation services use it, but also the, the so-called stimulation test has the sole purpose of making the interviewee believe that it works, and sometimes through deceptive tricks with packed decks or with statements that a lie would be detected. And we have enough information about the various methods that polygraph operators deploy to be confident that this is how they do it. So beside the doctrinal issue, which I think is actually very interesting, I think you're also raising an ethical question. You're effectively arguing that it is unethical to lie in this context. And here I'm perhaps playing a little bit of devil's advocate, but why is it inappropriate to lie in this particular context of investigation? We always have to talk about in the context of admissibility, reliability, and rationality. So calling a device which is unscientific, which is based on an obsolete paradigm in psychology, so introspection, which assumes that there is a correlation or a linkage between physiological and mental states, which is not true. In order to put the interview under pressure so that he thinks that whatever lie he says, he will be second-guessed by the machine, that's from my own moral point of view, unethical, but I wouldn't say that this is what is here interesting. What is interesting is the way that the legal system, that the penal system, treats released offenders. Let me give you some context here. The polygraph, the way things are now in England and Wales, is used for released sexual offenders. And one-sixth of them... This is not an insignificant number. One-sixth of the prison population are sexual offenders, and one-tenth of the released offenders are sexual offenders. And a disproportionately big number among them has learning difficulties, has mental health issues and substance issues. So they are quite vulnerable. So the problem starts becoming clear if we look at the way that probation managers and polygraph operators deploy the polygraph and use the interview to extract confessions from the interviewees. And 
we may say what we want from the ethical point of view. The problem is, in my opinion, that we create double standards. And I, I do not suggest that the probation context is the same as the context of criminal process, but I would say only that there is a common denominator across contexts where principles, legal principles, such as rationalism, the rule of law, and the protection against arbitrariness are valid across contexts. So that's really interesting. You have two points there. I think one is that it's unethical in the sense that the criminal justice system is operating a sham writ large, that you are presenting the technology as being something that actually works and is scientifically reliable. And regardless of the results, it just looks bad for the justice system to be doing that. And then you further push this along by saying that, well, it tends to be imposed on populations which may have particular intellectual challenges, and therefore we're exploiting that particular attribute of that population, which I think is an interesting point. The other thing that I'm struck by here is that it seems to me that as humans, we're somewhat incapable of compartmentalizing in this way. The fact that we use the polygraph, and perhaps we use the polygraph as this sham purpose, the more you use it, the more you start believing in the technology. Would that be fair to say that you know we get comfortable with the polygraph, we see it around, even though we know that it's not really reliable, and then what starts to happen is that we start to believe it ourselves? Yes, I couldn't have said better myself. You have to believe in the polygraph so that it works. If you don't believe in its ability to find a pipeline into your soul and detect the truth, then it doesn't work. What is here interesting is that actually the polygraph test or the polygraph pseudo-test does not really require the machine. I assume, please tell me if I'm wrong, that you have watched the HBO show The Wire and the episode with Detective Bank using a photocopy machine to extract confession from a suspect, which is based on David Simon's book Homicide, which is, uh, reports what was going on in Detroit at the police station in Detroit from police officers using a photocopy machine. So what I'm trying to say here is, as long as you believe that a polygraph, a smartphone, or a photocopy machine works, then the polygraph test works. But it is important to keep these two things separate. The polygraph test cannot be reduced to the rather trivial technology, right? The, the polygraph as a device invented by William Marston is simply recording physiological functions such as cardiovascular activity, blood pressure, and skin conductivity. What is interesting is the idea that we could reduce normative concepts or mental states, such as truthfulness, to these physiological functions, which is not an innocent idea. This goes back to an obsolete paradigm in psychology called introspection. And among other things, they said that there must be a psychophysical 
that they are parallel, that uh, mental states run in parallel to physiological ones. So if we detect the one, we could extrapolate about the other. Now, why is this relevant? Well, William Marston, who designed the first prototype of the polygraph, and also is the creator of Wonder Woman. And I mentioned that because Wonder Woman has the lasso of truth, and with the lasso of truth, she makes everyone confined within it to tell the truth, which shows how obsessed William Marston was with the idea of detecting truth. So, and William Marston was a pupil of Hugo Münsterbeck, who was at that time one of the main proponents of introspection, of the very idea that we can observe our mental states in a scientific way and detect something. Now, the application in the legal context is not just a byproduct. I mention all that because both Munsterbeck and William Marston saw the legal context as the primary context of application for their scientific research program. And they were both unhappy with, I quote, the crude ways of assessing testimony. So they wanted to replace jurors and trials of fact with scientific devices. Now, this program has failed. This paradigm in psychology is now obsolete, but we still, as you say, have this device among us. Your article is, of course, entitled Zombie Forensics, and I assume that you're classifying the polygraph as a zombie because it seems to consistently rise from the dead. In some sense, I think that we simply can't leave lie detection or the dream of lie detection alone. Even though the technology has been shown to be unreliable, that perhaps the psychological paradigms have changed, we keep going back to this well. And regardless of all of the evidence that shows that we can't actually do it. What do you think it is about lie detection that makes it so attractive or tempting? Will we be ever able to just leave it alone? Yes, and to connect that with your previous question, why we have to believe in that and why we cannot stop believing. Well, here's my problem. And I think this is how I would answer this question. And again, I do not know the answer to that. The polygraph gives governments, but also societies, a false sense of security. The problem is that, especially in the context of, say, domestic abuse or terrorism, this false sense of security can literally have fatal consequences. If knowing what we know about how easy it is to pass the polygraph test so that the real terrorists will not be detected if they just deploy countermeasures. So, in a way, I would also say one more thing, that there's a systemic problem there. First of all, it gives governments and societies a false sense of security, but it also gives legal systems a way to resolve factual disputes because it helps legal systems extract confessions. And we have seen historically how prone legal systems are to become dependent or addicted, even addicted 
to confessions and jettison evidential principles. Just think about torture. In Europe, legal systems were using torture for centuries to extract confessions because they thought that torture is a reliable method to extract accurate confessions. So I'm not very optimistic about the future in short term. I think it is now a given that the remit of the polygraph will expand. But what I try to do in this paper, zombie forensics, but also in the paper called Not Very English, co-authored with Dr. Marion Oswald, is to restart the discussion on the validity of the polygraph, on the possible dangers, and also the incompatibility of the polygraph with the English legal system. That leads us, of course, to the final question, which is, what's next for your project? Where are the future directions that you're planning to take this work? Well, I guess everyone has had to reevaluate and make new plans now with this pandemic. But for me, it will be business as usual. I will keep working on expert evidence. The whole project with the polygraph is part of expert evidence. And although most of the times we tend to think about DNA evidence, which is also part of my work. Sometimes we also need to explain what does not fall under expert evidence. And this is where the project with the polygraph steps in. But uh, in terms of my future plans, I will try to finish my monograph on DNA evidence and expert evidence in general. Well, I'll certainly look forward to that. Kiri, thanks for taking the time to talk to us about the use of polygraphs in the UK and all the new and interesting issues that it raises. Great having you on the show. Thanks very much, Ed. Before we began the interview, Kiri made a particularly insightful remark about polygraphs. On the one hand, polygraphs are not interesting at all. They've been around forever, and the scientific community has discredited them time and time again. On the other hand, polygraphs are fascinating precisely because they're like the zombies that Kiri suggests they are. Every time you think that the polygraph is dead, it comes back again. In its current justification, polygraphs are a tool for imposing psychological pressure, the technological equivalent of good cop, bad cop. If suspects believe it works, then they're less likely to lie and they'll confess. But as my conversation with Kiri explored, there are costs to this benefit. There's the distastefulness and the cost to legitimacy associated with trickery. Even if you ultimately come out in favor of its use, there's a certain feeling that the criminal justice system should be better than that. There's also the danger of eventually believing your own lies. If the polygraph is unreliable, then beyond its use as an interrogation tool, we should simply disregard its results. But if a suspect passes the polygraph, don't we feel better about the suspect? And if the suspect fails it, aren't we uneasy about that suspect? 
The psychology is rather strange, isn't it? In a sense, Kiri's work shows why the polygraph in its current zombie form is so alluring and tempting. It appeals to our intuitive but discredited sense that we can assess credibility through physical traits. Remember that the traditional focus on demeanor that Julia Simon Kerr talked about with Alex Nunn last season is part of this conventional belief. The polygraph also appeals to what Kiri describes as our addiction to confession, yet another marker of truth that social science has increasingly questioned. And finally, as Wonder Woman's lasso of truth depicts, the polygraph appeals to our never-ending dream of a truth machine. Consider all the tensions the polygraph embodies. Expert evidence meets credibility evidence. Tradition versus reform. Intuition versus social science. And truth versus falsehood. For me, the polygraph is practically all of evidence law wrapped up into one. All you need now is a bow. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program and the University of Arkansas School of Law. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.